Thank you. Good to see you all tonight. I guess it's going to snow, is it? A little bit, something? I hear. Um, we are in Joshua chapter 5. As you're turning to Joshua chapter 5, I'll tell you another little anecdote uh, from last night. Yesterday when we were out, St. Patrick's Day, I don't know, tens of thousands of people, probably hundreds of thousands downtown, you know. And uh, so, you know, I went up to these three policemen and uh, they were standing on the edge, you know, and so this morning I told you the St. Patrick's quiz with the five questions, nobody got it right. So it's a safe bet to say I'll give you $20 if you get the answers right. Nobody did. But I gave it to these three policemen, and as you know, my son-in-law Scott is with Colorado Springs Police, and so I gave him the quiz, and I said, well, you didn't get the quiz right. You don't get 20 bucks, but you know, uh, you do win this uh, invitation to Mays Hills Bible Church, and I gave me each one of the church flyers, you know? And I said, hey, you guys know Scott Warren? Yeah, yeah, I know Scott. Yeah, I went to the academy with him. Uh, and I go, yes, yeah, my son-in-law. Oh, yeah, really? Yeah, I know Scott. And the other guy said, it's Sergeant Warren to you. <laughs> Scott made Sergeant and started about last month. So big congratulations, Scott. Yeah. But anyway, I thought I'd tell you that. He said, he said, it's sergeant warrant to you. <laughs> Joshua chapter 5. All men have a responsibility uh, to believe and obey God, uh, whether they say they believe or not. They have that responsibility because they're human beings. And the Bible shows us that, you know, all men have a knowledge of God, right? We call this general revelation. So we think about passages like Psalm 19, verses 1 to 6, where it says the heavens are declaring the glory of God. And in Romans chapter 1, Paul says that everybody in the whole world is without excuse, and they have been without excuse ever since Adam because of the things that have been made. You know, Paul says there in Romans 1, he says, the invisible things of God are clearly seen. And he uses a play on those words here. The things that are not seen are seen 2020. Uh, even if they don't have a Bible through what has been made. All men have a knowledge of God, and that knowledge of God makes men accountable to seek God, whether they've heard a Bible verse or about Christ or not. So all men have a responsibility to obey, but this becomes especially true when, in a, in a special way, a particular way, it becomes true when you have some sort of professed relationship with God. Now, to give you an idea, you know, if we think about this as a Christian, you know, we can look at uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, where Peter talks about the responsibility that all believers have. Christians have this responsibility to uh, follow the Lord. So in 1 Peter chapter um, 1, in verse 14, he says, as obedient children, you're a believer, you're God's child. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts that were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy in your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So he quotes out of the Torah and applies the same principle to Christians and says, you should strive to live for the Lord. And, 1 Peter 1.17, if you address as Father, the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, conduct yourselves in fear during your time of stay upon the earth. The point is this, a professed relationship to God uh, means that you have a moral responsibility to follow the one that you call as Lord. Well, this is also true for 
the people of Israel, the nation of Israel, under the law of Moses. When Israel came out of Mount Sinai, when God delivered them from their bondage to the Egyptians, God brought them to Mount Sinai, and God made a covenant with the nation. In Exodus chapter 24, when Moses was delivering the covenant to Israel, in Exodus chapter 24, in verse 7, it says that Moses took the book of the covenant, and he read it in the hearing of the people. He said, here's God's commandments for you. Here's the covenant. He read it, and they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, we will be obedient. And then Moses took the sacrifice, uh, the blood of the sacrifice, and he sprinkled it on the covenant and on the people. And he said, okay, the blood of the covenant, you have sworn submission, you are now under the covenant. Now, until that moment, technically speaking, Israel was not under that covenant. When they said, we will submit to this covenant, then Moses says, okay, we're going to ratify this covenant, and he sprinkled the blood. By the way, the same thing is true in the new covenant. Israel, God swore a covenant to restore Israel one day. It's called the new covenant. It's sworn to Israel. Until Israel comes to the place where they repent and put their trust in Jesus Christ and receive that covenant relationship, the blood of the covenant is not being applied to ratify that covenant between Israel and God. That's what's going to happen when Christ returns and brings this remnant to faith, and he brings them into a restored covenant in the messianic kingdom. Now, the church is going to be there in that kingdom. We're going to be there in glory as well. But Israel is going to receive that restored relationship when they embrace Christ, just like they did right here in Exodus chapter 24. So here's the point. When you profess submission to God, when you profess faith, that puts you into a, this covenant relationship. Well, here in Joshua chapter 5, we come to the place where Israel is now ready to enter in and start making war against the Canaanites and taking possession of the land that God swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're ready to roll. They're ready to rock. But this means that they had better be in line with the covenant. And as we find out here in chapter 5, they're not in line with the covenant. Israel cannot expect to receive the blessings of this covenant if they're not obeying the covenant. So what happens here in chapter 5, we're going to see three ways that Israel needed to line up with God's covenant demands. Now, uh, I think what we're going to do on this, even though we're doing, uh, we've got uh, here 15 verses, I think it's going to be better to handle it section by section. So we're going to come to each section, read it, explain it, bring out some principles, make some application of it. So we're going to start here in chapter 5, verses 1 to 9, but I'll go ahead and um, uh, you know, pray for us right now. We thank you, O oh God, for giving us this opportunity of coming to hear your word the words that your spirit spoke through your prophets and the word that you've passed down to us. And it is profitable for all of our instruction. So we pray that your spirit would take it and help us, O oh God, to understand and apply it. We uh, thank you for this and ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in verses 1 and 9, we come to the first need for Israel to line itself up with the demands of God's covenant. And it is this. They have to get circumcised. 
Now, at this moment here, they just crossed the Jordan River. Um, you've got two million people with probably, probably somewhere in the neighborhood of a half million fighting men. Uh, and, uh, you know, they have just, uh, you know, crossed the river. They're ready to roll. And, you know, as far as they, Israel is concerned, they're probably thinking, let's go. I'm going to read to you from one uh, source right here explaining the historical context. Under Joshua's leadership and by miraculous intervention, some two million soldiers and civilians crossed the Jordan River. About two million total, but that was men, women, children. So about two million have crossed. A beachhead was quickly established at a place called Gilgal on the western edge of the Jordan River, and from every human point of view, it was time to strike immediately at the strongholds of Canaan. After all, the morale of Canaan had been utterly collapsed in the face of one old and two recent news items that had spread through the land. These things that these people, these Canaanites had heard about, first of all, they heard about the fact that God absolutely destroyed the, the, the Egyptians 40 years earlier. When these plagues came and crushed Egypt and Pharaoh released uh, the Jews, you know, this is not too far. You know, to get, to get from Egypt up to, uh, you know, the land of Canaan, not that far at all. I mean, it's kind of like heading to one of the edge of our Colorado borders, you know. So everybody knew that God had, uh, the God of Israel had brought Egypt to his knees. Everybody in, in Canaan, I might have said, everybody in Egypt knew that the, uh, everybody, excuse me, everybody in Canaan uh, knew that God had crushed the Egyptians. Everybody in Canaan knew that God had parted the Red Sea to bring them out of uh, Egypt. Everybody in Canaan knew that two Amorite kings, uh, Sihon and Og, had uh, attacked Israel and that God had uh, uh, given Israel the victory. And everybody knew that God had just dried up the Jordan River, which is just a couple miles away from Jericho, and brought Israel across the Jordan River. So these guys are terrified at what's going on. So look at verse 1. It came about when all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west, and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea, heard how the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan before the sons of Israel until they had crossed. Their hearts melted, and there was no spirit in them any longer because of the sons of Israel. They knew that they were in serious trouble. Now, who were these Canaanites? You know, uh, if we go back into the book of Genesis, we know that uh, Noah had three sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. And uh, Ham, one of the sons of Noah, had a son named Canaan. So the Canaanites come from, uh, you know, Noah's grandson, Canaan. Now, as you study history, and we've talked about this in the Torah quite a few times, the Canaanites were notably evil. Now, you know, I mean, everybody's evil. Everybody's a sinner. But when we think about evil cultures, you know, what would be some of the worst, most evil places in America? Well, Las Vegas, where I was born. Uh, you know, they did rank Las Vegas. I saw some news article that said, what are the most sinful cities in, Las in America? Las Vegas was rated number one, not surprisingly. Uh, who was number two, Al? No, your hometown, San Francisco. <laughs> but, you know, you think about notable, like, okay, this is a really evil place, okay? Uh, you know, Seattle and Portland are way up there. You know, but you say, okay... The Canaanites were noted for being especially wicked, a wicked culture. Um, 
And uh, these people, you know, migrated into this region probably eight to 900 years earlier. You know, we trace back to the Tower of Babel back in the 24th century B.C. Right now we're in the 15th century B.C. This is like 1406 at the moment, Joshua. You go back about 900 years earlier, the Canaanites, after the Tower of Babel, uh, migrated out of that region just like everybody else did. I mean, you had the migrations that came out of Babel. You had some of the people that went eastward and ended up becoming the Asiatic people groups. You had people that went southward into Egypt, and you had the people of, uh, of Egypt and Libya and all of these people groups. You had people that migrated eventually uh, kind of northwestward. These became what we would call the European groups that ended up having lighter hair, lighter skin. They all come from Noah. Well, the Canaanite migrations came into the land of Canaan, and when we look at these two labels, the Amorites and the Canaanites, the Canaanites uh, oftentimes is a broad term that talks about all. And as we've seen, there is, uh, I think, I forget what the number was, we saw this last week, it was, I think, uh, at least, uh, I think about 15 or so Canaanite tribes. Now, many times it's just listed like seven of them are listed, but, you know, Girgashites, Hivites, Hibites, uh, you know, Mennonites, everybody else. Uh, my pastor used to tell that joke, so I, I kind of have to always tell it too, you know. Um, but you have these, and, and now, so Canaanites were kind of like a broad term for all of them. And there was the Canaanites in particular, but Canaanites was kind of like for, and Amorites also was used sometimes to talk about all of these Canaanite tribes. Now, generally speaking, what happened is is that uh, the Amorites tended to be more of the uh, settling in the hill areas, the mountainous hill areas of Canaan, and the Canaanites sometimes are seen as being more along the coastline, like the Phoenicians, uh, Tyre and Sidon, for example, were Canaanite cities. Who's the uh, famous, uh, infamous uh, lady that came out of uh, Tyre and Sidon? Jezebel. She was a Canaanite princess. So you had all of these Canaanite tribes, all of them are terrified because they're hearing what God is doing uh, in his people Israel. Verse 2, at that time the Lord said to Joshua, make for yourselves flint knives and circumcise again the sons of Israel the second time. We first come across circumcision for Israel back in Genesis chapter 17 So Abraham is 99 years old, and this is when the angel of the Lord comes to him and says, okay, Abraham, in one year, I'm going to give you and Sarah the promised son. I think it's interesting that as you look at the previous promises, like Genesis 12, 13, 15, and so on, that in those passages, God was always saying, okay, Abraham, one day I'm going to give you this special son, but he doesn't explicitly say it's going to be from Sarah. In Genesis 17, And 18, he says, Sarah is going to be the one, and within one year, she is going to have this promised son. So Abraham is now 99 years old, which is 24 years after, at the very least, 24 years after God swore this special son to Abraham and Sarah. And uh, he says, before you have this son, you're going to have to go out and be circumcised. Now, in what chapter and verse of the Bible does God make an explicit statement to say that Abraham had a right relationship with God, that he was saved? Genesis chapter 
15 verse 6. Pretty important passage. Paul even brings it up in Romans chapter 4. He says, hey guys, circumcision doesn't give you salvation. Nothing you do gives you salvation except trusting God. And what Paul does in Romans is that he says, hey, you Jews that think that somehow the law and circumcision is important to salvation, don't forget, God declared that Abraham was righteous with him in Genesis chapter 15, and that was 14 years, 14 years before God commanded him to get circumcised. So what is the significance of circumcision? In Genesis chapter 17, uh, God tells Abraham it's going to be the symbol of the covenant that I have sworn to you and your people, a symbol of the covenant. It's not establishing the covenant, it's a symbol of the covenant, just like a wedding ring is a symbol of a covenant relationship. It doesn't make you married, but it's symbolic. Speaking of rings, I had to take mine off for my surgery, you know? It was hard to get off. I hate it when rings shrink. <laughs> Can't blame that one on Karen putting my clothes in the, uh, in the uh, dryer too hot, you know? Yeah, I'm having to resize, but it was really tight. <laughs> but a wedding ring is a symbol of, 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 a, of a relationship, of a, of a covenant. And so circumcision came when Abraham was 99 to symbolize the covenant that God had sworn to Abraham. Now, when we look at the nation of Israel, when they came out at the Exodus, uh, we see that this command of circumcision was already by that time, you know, some, uh, you know, five, six hundred years old. But the law of Moses and Leviticus chapter 12 also made circumcision part of the Mosaic covenant. So on the eighth day, they had a commandment in the law of Moses to circumcise their children, their male children who were eight days old. But here's what's interesting. During the 40 years of the wilderness wandering, Israel was not obeying the covenant. They were not circumcising their male children for the 40 years of the wilderness wandering. How can you go in and take possession of the land of the covenant if you're not obeying the covenant? One writer here, Donald Campbell, says, though all the men of Israel had been circumcised before they left Egypt... Those men died in the wilderness because of their disbelief at Kadesh Barnea. Their sons who were born during the wilderness wanderings did not get circumcision, which was further evidence of their own parents' spiritual indifference. This sacred rite, therefore, needed to be performed. So here's the way it was. Any men, basically, that was between age 38 and 57 that were still living, these had been the ones that were under 20 that came out all of those had been circumcised in Egypt. But all of the men who were uh, under age 38 were not circumcised. Well, those are your prime warriors, right? I mean, I don't, I don't want to go to war right now. I guess if, if we had to, we would go out and fight. But, you know, those are your, those are your warriors, you know. Your, your prime men, none of them were circumcised. So, got to get right with God. That means that they're going to have to get circumcised. So here's what Joshua effectively says. God says this to Joshua, and Joshua says, come on, guys, you got to get right with God. So we're going to take some pieces of broken rock here, some flint. Now, you know, flint can be really, really sharp, right? When, when, when they took my fingertip off, they had a scalpel, and they put me under anesthesia, which I'm glad for. I didn't want to be awake for that. I woke up, and it was like, oh, man, it's all over, you know? 
but you're taking grown men with a piece of sharp rock and you're circumcising them. This is not very fun. Look at verse 3. So Joshua made himself flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath Ha-Araloth. This is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the people who came out of Egypt were males. All the men of war died in the wilderness along the way after they came out of Egypt. For all the people who came out of Egypt were circumcised, but all the people who were born in the wilderness along the way as they came out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the sons of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until the nation, that is the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not listen to the voice of the Lord, to whom the Lord had sworn that he would not let them see the land which uh, the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. Their children whom he raised up in their place, Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised along the way. It says that Joshua circumcised them, and the name of the place that they called it was Gibeath Ha-Araloth. A Gibeah means a hill. Ha-Araloth, the word ha means the. So Gibeah Ha-Araloth. What does Araloth mean? It means foreskin. <laughs> so they had a memorial place called the Mountain of the Foreskins. We have, we have places like Yellowstone, <laughs> you know, Yosemite. <laughs> this is our national monument, Hill of the Foreskins. <laughs> but it also had another name, and it was called Gilgal. Now, the, the word Gilgal, the, the, the root word of that word, it means to roll away. And what it explains here in Joshua chapter 5 is that, you know, when they did the circumcision and then they, they were rolling away the shame of Egypt and the reproach of Egypt. So, really, both of these two names, you know, have this, you know, strikingly uh, similar significance that uh, that's where they circumcised all their soldiers. Now why did, they, why did they not obey God over the last 40 years? You know, probably the best answer is that it just somehow their rebellion carried with them. When they refused to obey God at Kadesh Barnea and enter the land, God said, you know what, you've really ticked me off. You're going to spend the next 40 years in the wilderness. And so this rebellion of not believing God just kind of remained with them for the 40 years. And I don't know if they intentionally said, well, we're just not going to circumcise our kids or what it was. I don't know. But definitely this idea of rebellion uh, it was part of this whole issue. Those were some tough years, you know, that, those 40 years. Read through, we've, read, we've gone through the book of Numbers. You know, you talk about a bunch of uh, whining, complaining, grumblers. It was a tough time. But now, at the end of the 40 years, it's time to inherit the land. It's time to Listen, there comes a time when you have to say, I need to get my life in line with God, you know? I need to get my line lined up with God. Now, that's always the right time. Now is always the right time to do that. But if you're, if you're looking at things and you're saying, I need to get things right, yeah, right now is the time to get things right. So look at verse 8. Now, when they had finished circumcising the nation... They remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. Yeah, again, I mean, I've had, you know, you know, anesthetic, anesthesia, wrapped up. These guys are using a rock 
So you can bet that there was things, stuff like infection and a lot of pain. So he remained there until they were healed. And then the Lord said to Joshua, today I have rolled away, and there's that word Gilgal, today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the name of that place was called Gilgal to this day. It's going to take a little bit of time for them to heal up. And you remember that it's a good thing that all the Canaanites, including Jericho, because they were ready to attack Jericho, Jericho was terrified. So these guys are sitting around for the next uh, you know, couple weeks healing up. Canaanites didn't mess with them. People of Jericho, they locked the city up tight. They were terrified of the Jews. Good thing that they were terrified. Well, Israel's taken one step now to get right with God, but there's two more. So look down here to verse 10. The need to obey the Passover. We read in Numbers chapter 9 that Israel did keep the Passover one time when they got to Mount Sinai. So after they left Egypt, they kept the Passover one time. But for the last 39 years plus, they have not been keeping the Passover. You know, in Exodus chapter 12 is where God brought Israel, uh, you know, uh, redemption from Egypt. And you remember how the Passover worked. God said, okay, I'm going to strike the people of Egypt tonight with uh, the death angel. And Pharaoh is going to finally break down and release you guys. So if you want to escape the judgment that I'm going to bring on Egypt, you have to bring into your house a one-year-old lamb. And you bring it into your house on the 10th day of the first month. Their first month was called Aviv. And that would correspond to our basic March, kind of late March. So bring this Passover lamb into your house on the 10th day, and you keep it in your house for five days, and you let it live in the household, and you play with it. Little animals are fun, right? I mean, you know, Lee and Mariah, you know, they have a, you know, a ranch, and I sometimes see the videos where they have maybe a baby brand new calf, and you know, Mariah's playing with this little baby calf. This is really cute stuff. So you got this little lammy in your house for five days, and then what are you supposed to do on the fifth day, on the 14th day of the month? Slit its throat, slaughter it, and eat it. Daddy, what are we eating for dinner tonight? <laughs> oh, this is called a hamburger. <laughs> no, this was lammy. You know, when, when Jesus Christ came into Jerusalem in the last week of his life, he, in the triumphal entry, it was the 10th day of the first month, Israel's lamb coming to his people. And he was there for five days. And then on the day of the Passover lamb, on the 14th day of the month, on the day of the Passover lamb is when they crucified him. You see, the whole Passover is ultimately telling us about redemption that God is going to bring in Christ. It's the greatest redemption, and that's why Jesus in the Lord's Supper, he said, from now on, I want you to take this Passover meal and think about my death, the bread, my body, the cup, my blood. So they did this, verse 10, uh, while the sons of Israel camped at Gilgal, they observed the Passover on the evening of the 14th day of the month on the desert plains of Jericho. Now, way back when God gave them the law, he said, you are to do this every year to remember my salvation. Forty years they've not been doing it. They're not in line with the covenant. Every year they should have been doing it, but they have not been doing it. And so they did this right there on the plains of Jericho, right next to Jericho uh, there in Gilgal. They had a Passover meal. 
Now they just they just they just got circumcised, okay? I can imagine what dinner was like for that group of guys, you know? Like uh, uh hey, hey Bob, could you bring me the potatoes? Oh, no way, man. You get them yourself, you know. <laughs> I don't know. I think it's funny. <laughs> Just thinking about the whole thing, you know. Uh, <laughs> get them yourself, man. <laughs> okay. Uh, they obeyed God. They kept the Passover. Another step forward. Now, look at chapter uh, 5, verse 11 right here. On the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. The manna ceased on the day after they had eaten some of the produce of the land, so that the sons of Israel no longer had manna, but they ate some of the yield of the land during the air. What an amazing testimony. For 40 years, God has been providing for them with manna, right? And then the very day when they ate from the land, God said, okay, don't need it anymore. You know, I remember back in, uh, <laughs> I remember back in seminary uh, when I had homiletics, you know, I mean, some of these guys were really sharp, you know, and these guys were polished sharp. I don't think I was, you know, we were joking, uh, Ken Fuller, my friend here from Florida, we've known each other for 30 years. And, you know, Ken, um, Ken has been overseeing uh, a foundation that has been funding ministry all over the world, like the people in Ukraine and all over the world. Ken has been their director for the Believers Foundation, and he's just had amazing opportunities for serving God all over the world, and such a dear friend, and, you know, uh, we, we have a great time. And, uh, you know, so he has been very close to George Zemeck, who was one of my professor at Masters. Dr. Zemeck went out in 96 to Florida, and Dave Duell, and they started a church-based Bible Institute, and Ken did studies under that. He studied other places, but, you know, Ken, you know, is as sharp as could be, Greek, Hebrew, everything, teaches all over the world. And, uh, you know, Zemeck, you know, like, Zemeck was an amazing guy, you know. Um, Hard to follow sometimes, because he was just so brilliant. And um, so when he went down originally to Florida, you know, another one of the guys from Master Seminary said, sending Zemeck to pastor a church is like sending a battleship in where you need a rowboat. He's just so huge in terms of his Bible and understanding. Now, I'm, uh, I don't know if I'm losing my thought, train of thought here of what's going on. <laughs> but, um, oh, I know what it was. So the thing with Zemeck is, is that he just like, you know, and it was hard for people in the church sometimes to follow him. He just died about two weeks ago. You know, 80 years old, wonderful guy. But he was just so huge in terms of his mind and his Bible and knowledge. Well, I've, I've kind of had that problem a little bit myself, you know. And so it's like learning how to be a communicator. Maybe I'm still not a good communicator, but learning how to kind of bring it down and communicate. And so I remember in the homiletics class at Masters, you know, like, you know, Alex Montoya was one of the professors who's, you know, grew up in East L.A. Hey, guys, you know, let me tell you how you got to do this here, you know. And uh, so I had this message on Joshua 5, and my outline for it was that God's provision was fat. It was faithful, it was adequate, and it was timely. 
faithful. It started coming the day that they needed it. It was adequate. It wasn't gourmet meal, but it sustained them. And it was timely. It started right on time and it ended on time. So I had this little simple mess outline. And Alex said, hey, man, you're finally starting to get the point here. You know, you got to communicate. God took care of them for 40 years. But the day that they ate from the land stopped. All this testifies of it's God's miraculous provision. So when they had the Passover, you know that it was an eight-day celebration. The first day was the Passover, and then it was followed by seven days of unleavened bread celebration. God is taking care of them the whole way. One commentator here says that God's people, entrance in the land of Canaan, put an end not only to the wilderness manna, but also to their enemy's courage. Israel's consumption of the land's food was a symbol of it taking possession of the land. This is uh, very, very symbolic. You know, God swore this land to Abraham, you know, some 700 years earlier, way back in Genesis chapter 12. I'm giving you this land. And he repeats that promise. Chapter 13, this is an eternal inheritance to your people, Abraham, an eternal inheritance. Genesis 15, 17, 21. I mean, all throughout the Old Testament, God swore, now this is getting fulfilled. So what Israel is doing right now is they're putting themselves in line to obtain their covenant land. They have gotten circumcised. They've done the Passover. Now there's one more thing that they have to deal with here. And this is this. They need to trust their covenant Lord. They got to remember something. For the last 40 years, God has been there with his people. He's always there, is he not? He's always there. He's everywhere. He's everywhere. How many of you have ever seen the movie? There was an original one, and then there's a remake called The Count of Monte Cristo. Just out of curiosity. It's a pretty good movie, you know? If you don't know the storyline... You know, there's uh, two guys that are friends. The one guy betrays the other one, sells him into slavery and prison. And the guy spends his whole life wanting to get revenge against this guy. He wants revenge against this guy because he took away his life. And then kind of later on, he ends up escaping from this prison and he ends up, you know, finding this massive treasure. And so he comes back and he portrays himself as this wealthy count. And his time for revenge is there. But the girl that he was engaged to, you know, says, no, you know, I'm still here. We can live together. We can be together. You don't need this revenge. He says, no. He says, I need to do this. God has abandoned me. God has not been here. Then she kisses him. She says, he's everywhere, even in a kiss. Just think about that, you know. I mean, love, you know, you think about love. Everything that we have, God's there. The love that we have, this is God. So for the last 40 years, who has been there with Israel? You go back to Exodus chapter 13, and uh, we find out that he has been there the whole time. This is the angel of the Lord. But they have not really been obeying him like they should. The Lord of the covenant has been there with them, but they need to start really obeying him. Look at verse 13. Now it came about when Joshua was by Jericho 
He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said, are you for us or for our adversaries? Hey, buddy, whose side are you on? You're a warrior. Whose side are you on? Verse 14, he says, no, rather, I indeed come now as captain of the host of the Lord. You got it all wrong. The question is not whose side I'm on. The question is whose side you're on, right? I'm captain of the host. The word host, seba, it means army. I'm the captain of the Lord's army. I'm the captain of the Lord's army. Joshua fell on his face, it says here in verse 14. And he bowed down to him and he said, what has my Lord to say to his servant? Sorry, I didn't recognize you. Now, when Joshua looked at him as Christ, this is the pre-incarnate Christ. As Joshua looks at him, you know, his appearance is that of being a man, a warrior, a human being. And it's so fascinating that as far as Joshua could tell, it wasn't until the Lord told him who he was that he realized who his was. And when Joshua did recognize him, he fell on his face and he says, what has my Lord to say to his servant? Verse 15, the captain of the Lord's host said to Joshua, remove your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. Just like God said to Moses back at Mount Sinai, take off your shoes, you're on holy ground. Why is it holy ground? This is God. Joshua is in the presence of God. The appearance is that of a warrior This is Christ, the pre-incarnate Christ. He's been there the whole time. (laughs) He's everywhere. He's always been there. Think about back to the book of Genesis. You know, when, uh, you know, God created Adam, and Adam looks around and says, hey, here I am. Kind of like coming out of, (laughs) maybe coming out of uh, surgery and anesthesia, you wake up, oh, I'm in the recovery room, you know. Adam wakes up, hey, I'm here in paradise. And God says, uh, yeah, hang on a minute. I'm going to you know, get you a wife. And so you know, a little while later, God gives Adam this wife. This is the angel of the Lord. And when, when Adam and Eve sinned, it says that they were immediately guilty. And then they heard the sound of Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God, walking in the garden. God walking? Yeah, that's the angel of the Lord in a human appearance. Not a human being yet. He, he became a human being 2,000 years ago. For this reason, Hebrews 2.9, so that he might taste death for everyone. But he was there. Now when you come to Exodus chapter 13, turn back with me to Exodus for a minute. Let's look at a few of these things. First of all, come with me to Exodus chapter 3. Eskod, as they say in Russian. Uh, Exodus chapter 3. Here we are, Moses verse 1, 3, 1 was pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness, and he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now look with me at verse 6. When God speaks from the bush in verse 6, he says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at who? God, who's in the burning bush. Not a trick question. Who's in the burning bush? God. Then you look at verse 7. And then Yahweh, the Lord, spoke and said, I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. So who's in the burning bush? Yahweh, who is God. Okay? 
But then if you go back to Exodus chapter 3, verse 2, notice what it says. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a burning, blazing fire from the midst of the bush. This was the messenger of the Lord, the Malach Yahweh, messenger of the Lord. Angel of the Lord means messenger of the Lord. So right here, he's called God. He's called the angel of the Lord. He's also called Yahweh, the Lord. Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is God. Now, in, look, look with me at Exodus chapter 13. When you, when, you know, yeah, if you don't see this, you're, you're failing the test if you don't understand who Christ is. That's why when you look at, you know, cults like the Jehovah Witnesses, yeah, and you show them Scripture, it's like, he's always been here. Exodus 13, look at verse, uh, uh, where are we here? Exodus 13, 20. Israel, as they started leaving from Egypt, verse 20, they set out from Sukkoth and they camped in Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them on the way, and in a pillar of fire by night to give them light so that they might travel by day and by night. That's Christ. Look at Exodus chapter 14. When they get backed up to the edge of the Red Sea, and the Egyptian armies are ready to recapture them and re-enslave them, Exodus 14 uh, verse um, 21, it says, Moses, where are we here? Huh? Verse 19. Thank you. The angel of God who had been going before the camp of Israel moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved before them and stood between them. So it came about between the camp of Egypt and the camp of Israel, there was the cloud along the darkness, yet it gave light at night. Thus the one did not come near the other all night. He was fighting for them by standing in between their enemies. He's been there the whole time. In Exodus chapter 23, notice what it says over here in verse 20. Exodus 23 verse 20, Behold, God says, I am going to send an angel before you to guard you along the way, to bring you into the place that I prepared. Be on your guard before him and obey his voice and do not be rebellious toward him. He will not pardon your transgression since my name is in him. That's me is what God is telling them right here. Now, you travel throughout the Old Testament, we find out that uh, you know he's been there the whole time. So what's happening here is that God is saying, you need to submit to me, your covenant Lord. And he's, you find him you know, in, uh, in uh, Judges, you know, if you remember when Gideon, you know, uh, the, the people of Israel, they were beaten down, be, getting beaten down by the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appears to him and says, hey, Take courage, O valiant warrior. Oh, what do you mean? Oh, we're getting beat up by the Midianites. Hey, I'm sending you to go fight them. And then, you know, the angel of the Lord reveals himself to Gideon. He says, ooh, that was the angel of the Lord. Same thing happened in Judges chapter 13 with the parents of uh, Samson, right? He appears to Samson's mother and says, I'm going to give you a child. And then, you know, she goes back and tells her husband, hey, this guy appeared to me and told me I'm going to have a baby. I haven't been able to have a baby. And uh, so then when he appears to them, and they finally realize it's the angel of the Lord, the, the dad, Manoah, says, I think we're going to die. She says, uh, I don't think so. I think he would already killed us if he was going to do that. Turn with me to Isaiah 63 for just a minute. Isaiah 63 And then be ready to turn with me to Revelation chapter 19. 
Isaiah 63, notice what we have here. This is an eschatological passage talking about the end of the age, the tribulation period, the seven-year tribulation period that comes after the rapture when God brings judgment on a wicked world and culminates it with the return of Christ to bring his kingdom to this world. Isaiah 63, verse 1, who is this who comes from Edom with garments uh, of glowing colors from Basra? This one who is majestic in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Now, Edom, if you were thinking about, you know, the land of Israel, you know, you've got the Mediterranean Sea, and then you have Israel along the coastline, you know, basically something along the line of 200 miles from top to bottom, east, uh, north to south, and about 50 miles plus, uh, you know, from um, east to west, 50, 60 miles wide, about 200 miles top to bottom. If you keep going east, you come to the Jordan Valley, which takes you down to 1,300 feet below sea level where the Dead Sea is. You go across the Jordan Valley to the east, and we have modern-day Jordan, okay? Modern-day Jordan. In ancient times, you had the, the countries called Ammon, Moab, and Edom. So here, what Isaiah is telling us, something really, really big, a lot of big stuff is going to be happening with Edom, modern-day Jordan. Now, I don't know if that's going to be exactly the nation by the time these things get fulfilled, if it's going to be Jordan, but that's who this is in modern terms. Who is this coming from Edom? Verse 2, why, why are your garments red? Why are your garments like somebody who treads the wine trough, the wine press? Verse 3, I have trodden the wine trough alone. From the peoples there was no man with me. I also trod them in my anger, and I trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments, and I stained all my raiment. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption has come. And I looked, and there was no one to help. And I was astonished, and there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought salvation to me, and my wrath upheld me. And I trod down the peoples in my anger, and I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. This is Jesus Christ. This is the captain of the host of the Lord. This is the battles that take place at the end of the age. You know, those Armageddon battles. You know, all of these nations that are coming against Israel to wipe Israel out. And it says, you know, all the surrounding nations are going to come against Israel to wipe it out. A huge portion of them are going to come together at a place called Megiddo, right in the central part of Israel. But right here, it shows that part of these things that Christ is going to deal with is going after these people over there on the eastern edge of the Jordan Valley and his completely covered in red. Looks like he's been trampling red grapes. He says, no, that's the blood of my enemies. Now, go with me to Revelation chapter 19. We're going to close by looking at this passage. Revelation 19 Verses 11 and following. And I saw heaven opened, says John the Apostle, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. This is Jesus Christ, end of the seven year tribulation period, coming from heaven to earth. 
His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written upon himself that no one knows except himself. And he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, just like we saw in Isaiah 63. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. Who are these armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, bright and clean? Go back to chapter 19, verses 7 and 8. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. His bride, who's the bride? Church has made herself ready. And it was given to her, the bride, to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. The glorified church is in heaven throughout that seven-year tribulation period. The rapture brings resurrection to the church, beginning of the tribulation period. They're in heaven with Christ for the seven years. And then in verse 14, it says that when Christ returns at the end of those seven years, the glorified church is coming with him. Verse 15, it says, from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he might smite the nations... He will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, Come, assemble yourselves for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and commanders and mighty men and horses and those who sit on them, and all men, free men, slaves, small and great. It's going to be a slaughter like the world has never seen. And verse 19, I saw the beast, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. I saw the beast and all the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat upon the horse and against his army. You talk about a dumb thing. I'm going to go fight Jesus. Verse 20, The beast, the Antichrist, was seized, along with him the false prophet who performed signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. And these two, the beast and the false prophet, were thrown alive, that is, in bodily resurrection, into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. And the rest of these armies were killed with the sword, which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. Now, guess what happens next? Revelation chapter 20. And in Revelation chapter 20, it says that an angel came down and he binds Satan. And verse 2, it says he puts the dragon, the serpent of old, who's the devil and Satan, and he bound him for a long time. What? A thousand years. You know what a thousand years means? It means a thousand years. The millennial say, well, that just means a long time. No, it means a thousand years. Six times in six consecutive verses. Verse 3. And then he threw Satan into the abyss and he shut and he sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things he must be released for a short time. God knows how to say short time or long time. (laughs) Uh, Verse 4. And then he says, I saw the thrones and they sat upon them. These are resurrected saints. Judgment was given to them, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead. And they came to life and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead, the unsaved, did not come to life until a thousand years were completed. Verse 6, blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection, 
Over these, the second death has no power, but they will reign with Christ, be praised of God in Christ, and they will reign with Him for a thousand years. And then verse 7, now when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from earth's prison. So verses 7 through 15, it talks about the final uh, judgment that comes when Satan goes out and deceives those that had not trusted Christ during the millennium. Born during the millennium, but never repented and trusted. And then it culminates with uh, the final judgment, the great white throne judgment, and it culminates with the destruction of the material universe. And then something happens in verse 21, verse chapter 21. I saw a new heaven and a new earth because the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And Christ reigns eternally in a recreated universe with no more curse, no more sin, no more sorrow, no more pain, no more death. He says, the former things have passed away. Behold, I make all things new. This is what our captain is doing. (laughs) Our captain of Yahweh's host, our king, he's redeeming a cursed universe. And you, you look at this and you know, I don't know how anybody uh, can take you know, these things and say, oh, well, no, this is not really going to happen. It's just all figurative, all millennialism. No, it's going to happen exactly as he says. I may not be a smart man, Jenny, but I know what premillennialism is. <laughs> yeah. Let's close by uh, just thinking about how this applies to us right here. Israel has everything in place. It's ready to rock. uh, You know, they're ready to rock and roll. And God says, just follow my captain. And I would say that uh, this basically is what God says to you and me, right? In in John chapter 12, it says that uh, the one that loves uh, Christ will follow him, you know? My servant. Where I am, they'll, they'll, that's where they're going to be. That's what we got to do, right? Stay close to the Lord. Be in His Word, be in prayer, be in church, and be serving. Four good things to do. Amen? Father, we thank You for this night, this privilege of uh, opening Your Word to see the great things that uh, You promise and accomplish. Uh, dear God, we uh, are not deserving of your kindness, but uh, you're a God who gives uh, grace for those who are willing to trust in your Son. And your Son deserves our trust, and he deserves our obedience. I ask that you forgive us, O Lord, as we think about our own failures and sins. Forgive us, O God. We ask you in the name of Jesus that you'd cleanse us and create in us a clean heart and renew a right spirit within us. And Lord, that you would uh, help us to uh, be faithful until that day when Christ brings us home to himself. We don't know when that's going to be, Lord, but we know that you are going to fulfill your promise. So help us, O oh God, to serve you faithfully until that day. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.